Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Ben Johnson fills us in on the future of Bitcoin ETFs. Elizabeth Foos investigates the key drivers behind interest in muni bonds. Tim Steffen prepares investors for upcoming tax changes. And Megan Patchelock tells us everything we need to know about health savings accounts. Let's get started. Here are Ben Johnson from Morningstar Research Services and Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The first Bitcoin futures exchange-traded funds are about to begin trading. Joining me today to discuss these strategies in particular and the prospects for other cryptocurrency-related funds waiting in the wings is Ben Johnson. Ben is Morningstar's Global Director of ETF Research. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here today. Hi, Susan. Thank you for having me. So uh, the SEC greenlighted the first futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, and there are a few other futures-based Bitcoin funds waiting in the wings. But these funds will not be investing directly in Bitcoin. Tell us a little bit about these strategies. Well, that's the all-important point here, Susan, is that these Bitcoin ETFs are, are not the Bitcoin ETFs that I think many investors are, are looking for, frankly. They're the Bitcoin ETFs that SEC Chairman Gary Gensler and his colleagues at the SEC will allow for the time being, and they will allow them almost explicitly, almost exclusively, because they invest not in actual Bitcoin, but in Bitcoin futures. And as opposed to actual Bitcoin, Bitcoin futures are already an established financial product that are regulated, that are traded on an exchange, that have more there there, if you will, than underlying Bitcoin, which is an area of the market where in all its many comments on the various filings for Bitcoin ETFs, be they futures-based or chiefly physical, the SEC has really raised fundamental concerns with respect to chiefly fraud and market manipulation. The SEC's concerns as it pertains to Bitcoin futures ETFs are clearly far fewer given that they didn't so much green light these ETFs as they didn't give them a red light. So now, despite despite the obvious risks, right, of investing in something as volatile as Bitcoin, what are the other risks that investors need to be aware of when they're investing in these futures-based strategies? Well, let, let's not for a moment let the primary risk here be set aside, which is that Bitcoin is an immensely volatile asset class. It's still very new. It's still very unclear what is sort of the fundamental story there that, that drives its value. The narrative around why Bitcoin is worth anything at all is really shifted, but it's gotten to the point where enough people have believed that it's worth something for long enough to give it a significant amount of value as it stands today. Its total market cap, if you want to use that term, is in excess of a trillion dollars. So the fundamental risk here, still the big risk, capital R risk, is the risk of Bitcoin itself, the volatility, and frankly, the behavioral issues that that might present. Investors historically have had a very difficult relationship with volatile assets, buying exactly at the wrong time, often uh, and often selling at exactly the wrong time. Now, secondary to that, and secondary, I would say, by a mile, has everything to do with the fact that these ETFs will invest, again, in Bitcoin futures and not actual Bitcoin. So by virtue of investing in actual Bitcoin futures, 
what you see is that there are some issues, most notably, related to maintaining that exposure. So it's the intention of most of these ETFs to invest in the front month futures contract. That front month futures contract, like any futures contract, is going to expire. And when that futures contract expires, the funds will have to invest in another month's futures contract, and they have a bit of latitude as to how they allocate across a variety of different Bitcoin futures contracts. And what can happen in the process is that if that next futures contract or those next futures contracts are trading at prices that are above the ones that the fund currently owns, they will be in effect systematically selling low and buying high. Now, in futures markets, the shape of that curve is often known as contango, which is not a dance, but a way to lose money by trying to maintain exposure to an underlying commodity or Bitcoin in this instance by virtue of investing in it through regularly rolling futures contracts. Uh, and it's something that, depending on the shape of the futures curve, so if it's particularly steep, can be particularly costly. And indeed, we've seen this movie before with oil's futures contracts, natural gas futures contracts, and the ETFs that have offered investors exposure to those underlying commodities. The other risk investors should be aware of is tax risk. So unlike traditional ETFs, these ETFs are going to deal chiefly in cash. So they're not going to be bringing in futures contracts on an in-kind basis, sending them out the back door on an in-kind basis. They're going to be dealing in cash. So there could potentially be tax costs to be cognizant of as well that investors will absorb potentially irrespective of whether or not they're buying and selling these funds themselves. Another very important risk that investors in a Bitcoin futures ETF need to be aware of is that there is a strict limit on the amount of any given futures contract that these funds can own. Now, if these funds were to gather enough assets such that they would bump up against these limits, there is the risk that they would actually have to suspend new share issuance. So they would have to close their doors to new investors. And what would happen as a result, in all likelihood, is that these ETFs prices could trade at a significant premium to their underlying net asset value, which isn't a good situation for anyone involved and, and certainly not investors, at least not those that are trying to liquidate to try to capitalize on that temporary premium. Now, if this all sounds very familiar, it's a scenario that we've seen play out historically with those ETFs that also access underlying markets via futures, most notably and most recently with USO, the United States Oil Fund, which uses futures contracts to tap into oil markets. And then, Ben, who are some of the asset managers behind these futures-focused Bitcoin ETFs? So if you look at the litany of asset managers that have filed for Bitcoin ETFs, the first out of the gate is going to be ProShares with their Bitcoin ETF strategy ETF. The ticker for that fund is going to be BITO. So that is going to launch as we sit here today, tomorrow, Tuesday, October 19th. Now, there are others that may follow soon behind, including Valkyrie, Invesco, Vanek, and others that are still further down the path. I would not be surprised that a month or two months from now, we see a minimum of a half dozen different Bitcoin futures-based ETFs out there on the market 
competing for investors' assets. And then now that the SEC has approved these futures-based Bitcoin ETFs, what does that mean for other types of crypto strategies awaiting approval in that ETF wrapper? Well, now that the SEC has let Bitcoin futures ETFs pass, I think the question on many's minds is when might the SEC allow for Bitcoin ETFs that invest directly in Bitcoin itself to see the light of day. I'm not about to make a guess there. My best guess is that the SEC probably feels that it's bought itself a sufficient amount of time to give that can a good firm kick further down the road. In the meanwhile, the SEC is going to have any number of different asset managers knocking on its door, making the case for an ETF that invests directly in underlying Bitcoin. Most recently and most notably was Bitwise Asset Management, which pushed across a 100-plus page research document, further trying to bolster the case for an ETF that would directly invest in underlying Bitcoin. Frankly, I think that's the ETF that most investors want. Frankly, whether or not you believe Bitcoin is a good investment, I think it would be a superior offering to what we've got coming here imminently, which is these ETFs that invest in not Bitcoin, but Bitcoin futures. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your perspective today on these new breed of ETFs that we're going to be seeing seeing tomorrow, it looks like. Thanks for your time. Thanks again for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, Elizabeth Foos from Morningstar Research Services talks about municipal bond fund inflows. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Municipal bond funds have been in pretty steady demand this year. Joining me today to discuss why is Elizabeth Foos. She's a senior analyst in Morningstar's Manager Research Group. Beth, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, Susan. So let's start by talking a little bit about inflows. Uh, Muni bond funds have enjoyed pretty consistent inflows. In fact, they've seen inflows for the past 16 consecutive months. Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are a couple of key drivers that have really been stoking that de historic demand for munis in 2021. First of all, overall credit quality in the municipal market is generally pretty strong. Um, muni issuers have been supported by a dramatically improved economic backdrop in the U.S. this year, as well as very generous stimulus packages from the federal government that have really been able to plug those budget gaps when they've come up. And more recently, investors in the U.S. are really recognizing the potential for tax increases in the coming months, if not years, and the tax-free income offered by muni bonds is really attractive. So Beth, how have muni bond funds in general performed so far this year? Well, I think the rally in munis have really been a bright spot in the fixed income markets in 2021. And overall, um, the municipal bond funds that hold that riskier debt, so bonds that are more sensitive to interest rate changes or that have lower credit quality have really outperformed their taxable counterparts. Um, that's trend has waned a little bit in the last few weeks and months, but year to date, that's still true. 
And as you alluded to, Beth, you know, we've seen that high yield municipal bond funds have really done exceptionally well this year. What's been driving that performance? Well, again, I think even in with with some of the more challenged uh, issuers, the credit quality has still remained relatively strong. And while valuations have been stretched, uh, portfolio managers are still reporting that there are some deals to be found there and the yield potential in this particular space just has been more attractive than other fixed income bonds. So Beth, we've seen um, the high yield muni category's largest strategy, Nuveen High Yield Municipal Bond, closed to some new investors and you don't often see a muni bond fund close. So. Tell us a little bit about what happened there, and is this saying anything larger about the high-yield muni market in general? Right. We don't see that very often, but this fund is by far the largest in our high-yield muni Morningstar category, and it has seen significant inflows, particularly in the past three years. So the firm did announce that it was going to close to some new investors, basically just to moderate that asset growth. And I think what that's saying, particularly about the high-yield muni market, is although it's very popular, the true high-yield muni space is a very small part of the overall muni market. And it's small, it's opaque, and a lot of the, that debt comes to the market unrated. So it really does require a bond-by-bond bond review in order to understand all of the risks and potential that these holdings can have for an investor. So let's say there's an investor out there who's thinking, maybe I do want to sort of dabble in a high yield muni bond fund. What are some of the risks that you need to be aware of? Good question. So with, although uh, defaults are historically pretty rare in the municipal bond market, most of them do occur in the high yield muni space. And you know, the funds that buy these high yield muni bonds offer higher yields, but of course there's more risks associated with that and there's more generally more volatility over a market cycle um, for investors. So you know, folks that are interested in managing their tax burden and have a little bit higher risk tolerance might be well served with a muni fund. And we, um, we rate several um, high yield muni bond funds pretty highly. Um, one example there is T. Rowe Price Tax-Free Yield, which earns our top rating, our fun, top fund analyst rating of gold. Tell us a little bit about that fund and what we like about it. Sure. Uh, T. Rowe Price Tax-Free High Yield is managed by a very large, very seasoned portfolio and credit analyst team. Um, they use in-depth research, bottom-up research, and sophisticated tools to manage the potential and the risk associated with uh, investing in that space. And you know, the, the portfolio won't load up too much on unrated debt or the riskiest parts of the high yield muni uh, sector, but uh, the lead portfolio manager, Jim Murphy, does work very closely with his um, counterparts on the, the corporate bond uh, desk there at T. Rowe to manage a corporate-backed muni sleeve, which makes it a little bit unique um, in the space. And over time, that combination has really served uh, investors well by providing a consistent risk-reward profile. And then there are a few other funds that we uh, assign fund analyst ratings of silver to in this high-yield muni bond category. Tell us about those. 
Sure. There are three other strategies that earn silver ratings on their cheapest share class. So uh, there's American High Income Muni, uh, BlackRock High Yield Muni, and um, MFS High Income Municipal uh, Bond. And, you know, again, while each portfolio might emphasize different sectors in the municipal bond space at, at different times, um, overall, again, all of these funds are managed by very veteran, seasoned teams that do really strong bottom-up research. So at the end of the day, they really understand the risks in each particular position that they're putting into their municipal bond fund. Well, Beth, thank you so much for your time today, not only for updating us on sort of what's going on in the muni bond landscape, but specifically for your focus on that high-yield muni bond market. We appreciate your time. Thanks so much, Susan. I'm Susan Chabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Tim Steffen, Director of Tax Planning at Baird, joins Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. In September, the House Ways and Means Committee released a wide-ranging proposal for tax reform. Joining me to discuss some of the highlights for investors, as well as what, if anything, you should do in response, is Tim Steffen. He's Director of Tax Planning at Baird. Tim, thank you so much for being here. Great to see you, Christine. Great to see you, too. So I want to discuss some of the highlights of this proposal. But before we do that, Tim, can you give us a sense of what you think about whether investors should act preemptively when they hear about tax changes? Should they start making changes or should you yeah. wait until there's more clarity? Yeah, you, you want to be careful because we want to make sure we know exactly what's going to be in there. All we've got right now is a proposal. Uh, one of several we've had over the last year. Um, this is a little bit more formal than others. Uh, so we think we've got a pretty good sense of where this proposal might go. And it sure feels like something is going to happen later this year. Um, there's some uncertainty out there. You know, if you follow the, pol- the political side of this, you know, the, the Democrats have very small margins to work with to be able to get something like this to pass. And they're struggling right now to get what they need. So who knows what's ultimately going to happen, but it sure feels like something is going to be changing here. Um, I would say the estate provisions, where we know there's going to be changes coming a few years down the road, regardless of what happens this year, those are probably things you want to start really planning for, maybe ready to take advantage of. Some of the other things that might be changing, and we've got a little bit of time yet this year, let's kind of see how it plays out. The reality is most people don't have a lot of flexibility in moving their income or the deductions from one year to the next. There isn't a lot you can do in some of those, but some of the retirement plan things, there may be some opportunities that to take advantage of strategies this year before they go away. Okay. So I'm wondering if you can summarize some of the highlights of this proposal. There's a a lot in it, but it does seem like 400,000 if you're a single filer and 450,000 if you're married filing jointly. Those are the big thresholds for a lot of uh, these changes. So can you summarize some some of the changes that will be um, contained within this proposal? Sure. Yeah. The, the, the latest proposal, if it goes through it, as has been talked about, is you, you know, the, the, the headline components are probably the increase in the top marginal tax rate. So uh, what would happen is for married couples, you'd see any income over 400000 actually would be taxed at a higher rate. 450 is the big jump. That's where you're going from up to 39.6. There's actually a window between 400 and 450 where there's still a tax increase. For singles, uh, it starts at 200,000, but again, the big jump is really at 400,000 where you get up to that 39.6% rate. So that, that's kind of the headline one. That would take effect next year. The other bigger one that's got people's attention is an increase in the top capital gain rate. 
Today, that's 20%. The new rule would be 25%. But what's complicated about that one is that it would be retroactive. If this bill passed today, we'd already be under these new rules because the effective date on that was roughly September 13th. So whether that stays that way or not remains to be seen. But those are the two big ones for individuals. Uh, there, there are some changes in the corporate tax side as well. We won't get into those necessarily. But on the individual side, those are the big ones. Again, a lot of things on the retirement plan side that are pretty interesting, uh, forcing distributions out for those with super large accounts, limiting some of the contributions and, and rollover and conversion techniques, which we can get into. But um, I'd say the headline ones are those two on the, on the, the tax bracket side. Well, let's talk about some of those retirement plan related provisions. And one I want to home in on is the backdoor Roth IRA and the mega backdoor Roth IRA. Can you talk about how the proposal addresses them and why it's seeming like many people think this whole backdoor thing may be over for people who had been taking advantage of it? Yeah, it sure seems like the party's coming to an end on the backdoor Roth. So just real quickly, the backdoor Roth has been a technique that allows people who otherwise couldn't contribute to a Roth IRA because they exceed the income thresholds to still be able to get money into the account by doing it via the traditional IRA. So you put the money in the traditional, you immediately convert it into the Roth. And if you get the right combination of, of circumstances, that can be very effective. Um, it was always a little bit uncertain, you know, certainly not what the, what the Congress intended when they created these rules that, that allow this to happen. But it's been one of those things, all right, you, you, know, you found a loophole, go ahead and do it. We're going to figure out a way to stop this one of these days. And it seems like now they've decided they're going to stop it. So the two things that would that are in this proposal that would limit the ability to do these. One is the, the regular backdoor. What they're basically saying is you can no longer convert dollars into a Roth IRA that wouldn't have otherwise been taxable when you took them out of the traditional IRA. So that basically says any money you put into an IRA on an after-tax basis can't be converted to a Roth IRA. So you're, you're, that, that basically is the, the whole backdoor Roth conversion in a nutshell. The other one they've done is for the the mega backdoor Roth, which is, uh, again, a a technique has been around a while, but it's got a newer term to it. Uh, That one affects more employer plans where people were putting, uh, in some cases, tens of thousands of dollars into a after-tax 401k plan and then immediately converting that to a Roth 401k or in some cases, even taking it out and putting it into a Roth IRA. Um, the, The proposal here would say, you can't put after-tax money into a retirement plan anymore, into an employer plan, which would effectively kill the mega backdoor. So uh, those two techniques would would end after this calendar year. So this is one of those, as you're talking about what should people do in anticipation of this, if you're one who's done the the backdoor or the mega backdoor in the past, I would make sure you get it done before the end of this year. There is no guarantee you're going to be able to do it after after the the end of this year. So uh, get, get hopping on that one if you can. Okay. And also, it seems like if you have straggler after-tax amounts that haven't yet been converted for whatever reason, get that done as well. Yeah, it sure seems like that's what you're going to want to do. Now, if you've got that blended with some pre-tax money, you know, when you do the conversion, it's pro rata. So you're going to have to get that after-tax money out. You also have to take the pre-tax money out with from your IRA. So there's a tax cost to doing that conversion. The great thing about the backdoor is you could always do it. You know, if you did it right, it was tax-free. But uh, uh, yeah, if, if you've got after-tax dollars you want to get out of your traditional and into a Roth, this may be your last chance to do it. 
Okay. I also want to talk about one thing that is not in this proposal that had been widely anticipated potentially to to be in the proposal, which is some sort of cap on the unlimited step up in capital gains that heirs can take advantage of when they inherit assets. Can you talk about that, Tim, Um, whether this was surprising to you and what you think the implications of this might be from an estate planning uh, standpoint? So it's long been assumed there was going to be some sort of change to the estate tax system as part of this. Uh, Candidate Biden talked about it a year ago. And as he's become President Biden, it's been high on his radar. And back in May, when we got the, the, the most recent big proposal, there was one in there that said the basis adjustment of death was going to go away. Well, what that means is when you die, any asset in your name that has uh, a, would get its basis stepped up or stepped down to its market value at date of death. So if you've got highly appreciated securities, a business, a home, all of those with a capital gain, it would go away. Doesn't impact retirement plans, annuities, those kind of things. But those highly appreciated stocks you've been holding forever that you didn't want to sell because of the gain, death made that gain go away. Well, the thought was that that provision was going to go away. And that was the proposal we've been working off of all summer. When the bill finally came out, or the first cut of the bill anyways came out, that wasn't there. It was gone. They instead went back to accelerating the reduction in the estate tax exemption. So effectively cutting the estate tax exemption in half from roughly 11.7 million now to what would probably be much closer to 6 million next year. That was how they were going to solve the issue of these large estates avoiding tax. It, it was a little bit of a surprise. Um, we really thought the basis adjustment was going to be impacted. You know, it's one of those where if it was ever going to go away, it felt like this is the year it was going to happen. It, again, it still may come back, but the fact that it didn't make it into this bill tells me that they probably didn't have the votes to get it in there. So I thought, why waste our political capital? And this one, let's try it with something else. This one was going to be a non-starter. From an administrative standpoint, that's great news because trying to recapture all those old cost basis numbers would have been a mess. Now we can go back to not worrying about cost basis and just getting our basis adjustment at death um, if it stays this way, and we'll deal with the estate tax in a different way. So uh, again, not out of the woods yet, could always come back in the final bill if there is a final bill, but as it stands right now, the basis adjustment at death is going to stick. Okay, Tim, such a helpful overview as always. Thank you so much for being here to talk us through it. Thanks, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar.com. Lastly, Megan Patchelock from Morningstar Research Services explains the ins and outs of HSAs. As open enrollment season approaches, you may be considering a high deductible healthcare plan with a health savings account, or as they're more commonly known as, an HSA. Well, what is a high deductible plan? How can you use your HSA? What are the benefits and the limitations? And what is the triple tax advantage everyone talks about with HSAs? Let's take a look. A high deductible health plan is a type of health insurance plan that offers lower premiums in exchange for higher deductibles compared to other types of healthcare plans. A health savings account, or HSA, is a tax advantage vehicle to save for qualified medical expenses. They are available to people enrolled in high deductible healthcare plans. Of course, there are some conditions to qualify for an HSA and some limits to keep in mind. First, to qualify for an HSA, your high deductible healthcare plan 
must have a deductible of at least $1,400 for an individual coverage or $2,800 for family coverage. The high deductible health plan's annual out-of-pocket expenses, including deductibles but not premiums, cannot exceed $7,050 for self-coverage and $14,100 for family coverage. Finally, HSA participants have annual contribution limits. Those covered by an individual plan can contribute up to $3,650, while those covered in a family plan can contribute up to $7,300. So if offered, employer contributions do count towards these maximums. Also, individuals over the age of 55 can save an additional $1,000 each year. Unlike a flexible spending account, there is no limit as to how much money can be rolled over from year to year in an HSA, providing the opportunity for account holders to accumulate significant HSA assets. As for the triple tax advantage that HSAs offer, that means that HSA contributions go in tax-free, money grows tax-free, and then can be withdrawn tax-free as long as it's spent on qualified medical expenditures. As a result, the tax benefit of an HSA outweigh what is offered by a 401k, a traditional IRA, a Roth IRA, and a 529 college savings plan. It's important to remember that funds withdrawn for non-healthcare expenses are taxed at the account holder's marginal tax rate. And if HSA dollars are withdrawn before the age of 65, the funds are subject to an additional 20% penalty. What happens to your HSA if you leave your job? Well, HSAs are tied to the account holder and are independent of the workplace. Although workers must be currently enrolled in a high deductible health plan in order to contribute one, but workers can open and maintain an HSA outside of their employer-provided one if it better fits their financial goals. That's our quick look at HSAs. Of course, whether or not it will work for you is up to you. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.